Welcome to One and Done TV. I am one of your hosts, Ian Hamilton. And I am royalty, as well as your second co-host, John Polking. John, why are you royalty? Because of my fancy chaps. Oh, well, that must be in regards to the TV show we are talking about today, The Duchess, which was just canceled on Netflix. Uh, why are we talking about the Duchess? Because it's one and done, because it only had one season, because it was canceled. And what are we going to do here today, John? We're going to do the waltz on the graves of these shows. We're going to get our finest garb on and we are going to prance around the floor, hoping to not step on the bones of the Duchess in the process. And in a more literal sense, we'll research it and tell you about why it was canceled and talk about uh, if we would have renewed it or not, because that is the hook of the show. That's what we do. But what's the hook? What's the hook? Uh, That is a very obscure The Ten reference for anyone out there that wants to watch a funny but problematic David Wayne property. Uh, But before we talk about that, Meaning the Duchess. Uh, what are you watching right now, John? So as listeners of the show that listen to full episodes oh, know. Oh boy, I know it's coming. I love How To with John Wilson, which is executive produced by Nathan Fielder. Are you watching the rehearsal? Yes. Okay. Me and Natalie just watched episodes one through three like two days ago. Good it's sweetness. so funny. It makes me so happy. Like this is cackle worthy laughter sort of things. Oh yeah. Natalie was laughing so hard. She looked like an old man. She (laughs) looked like an old man in pain. She was like, I I just try to describe the face I'm making to the listeners, John. An old man in pain. Okay. Yeah. It's like, wait, can you make it one more time? Specifically like Max von Sydow. Who? Max von Sydow. Who? Come on. You know Max von Sydow. Everyone knows Max von Sydow. Classic Norwegian, maybe, actor. Some sort of... If he's not a Skarsgård or a... I think he's uh, Swedish. Mikkelsen, Mads Mikkelsen, then I, I don't know uh, any... Not Danish. I mean, he's Danish, I think. What do you call people from the north again? Nordic. Nordic. That's it. I was I was saying I said nether, I think, at one point. I was like, that's not right. Well, there's the Netherlands. Do you think they call the Netherlands the Netherlands because it's nether in regards to the Nordic lens? I would guess. Yeah. Or maybe it's just low. It's kind of low, right? This in sea level terms. I don't know the topography of the Netherlands off the top of my head. Wow. Well, this is one and done. TV because we talk about uh, countries that will not fare very well when the sea levels rise, John. That's why I'm the second host. I don't know these things as much. I'm sorry. (laughs) Uh, Going back to the rehearsal, I can't see where he can go from here. I mean, it's only been three episodes and he's 
the the first episode was a great introduction into the concept, but then the second and third episodes already heightened the concept and it's very high concept. One of the things about writing and and coming up with a TV show and something like this is you create a format that you can replicate, right? That's how talk shows work. That's how reality shows work. That's how game shows work. That's how sitcoms work, even dramas to a certain extent. Everything has a format. And one of my problems as a writer is as soon as I create a format, I want to break it. And he broke it episode two and three. So I love it. I just have no idea how he can top it. Like I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. And he's Nathan Fielder. So I'm confident he will. It's just incredible to me. It's incredible. Yeah. It does. The thing I like about the breaking of the format is that there is some sort of consistency between, you know, two and three. So I'm assuming we're going to follow that thread for a bit. And that he also leaves in room to introduce all the other stuff, because the thing about the rehearsal is that it is so high concept, but it is about generally this universal idea of how do you prepare for what's to come? And I think that's such a broad question. How do you prepare for a situation you're really nervous about? Yeah. And that's so universal and so broad that I think you can sort of map a bunch of different concepts and trajectories onto that. And just rewatching some of Nathan for you afterwards and there's, there's going to be a million things and I don't know what they're going to be. And even if I know what it's going to be, it's going to be absolutely insanely funny. Nothing makes me, he's the king of cringe more than Ricky Gervais even. But he's like really good at making the cringe grounded in something real and relatable. There's always an emotional lesson to be learned, Mm -hmm. which is incredible because the whole kind of joke about him is that He's like an emotionless robot that doesn't understand people. And yet, as a storyteller, he's always so good at hitting the point home. Yeah. The idea of he doesn't exude emotions, but he knows scientifically what emotions should be just (laughs) makes it genius. It did. And everything blends together so perfectly. I I I know my dad's going to listen to this and I do want to throw him under the bus for a second. I told him nice. to watch the rehearsal, the first episode. He watched it like late at night, like 12:30. And so the end of the first episode, without giving too much away, Nathan rehearses telling the guy that some of the stuff that he thought was real was actually fake and they cut back to the actor playing the playing the guy instead of the real guy playing out the worst case scenario of it. And then pretty quickly they cut back to the real interaction. And my dad, the next morning after he watched it, he was like, that was really harsh that that guy just like went off on Nathan after the whole thing, saying he's a terrible person in this. I was like, dad, that was the actor. It was not the actual guy. The actual guy was much more mellow. He was like, well, that changes everything. Yeah, and also that joke brought back the point where there's one scenario where he rehearsed for the guy to 
feel the worst case scenario where the woman yells at him and everyone around overhears the conversation and they're like, you're a scumbag. We hate you. And, and he, he feels the worst case scenario. And so that was a callback to the actor was doing that to Nathan Fielder and your dad, uh, doesn't know shit. I think that makes sense. Yeah. He needs to know. He needs to know that. Get it together, Tom. His opinions aren't finite. They are not final because he fundamentally misinterprets some things. You are not as smart as you think you are, Mr. Lawyer. Mm-hmm. Preach. With that, I think I know what time it is. Oh, it's showtime, baby. Five, four, three, two, one. Showtime. On September 11th, 2020, we were introduced to the fashionably disruptive single mother, Catherine, on the show The Duchess. Unfortunately, this royalty was not given a second crown as six episodes made The Duchess one and done. Ian, this is a show that centers on the mind and acting talents of stand-up comedian Catherine Ryan. Have you had any familiar with Catherine Ryan? Before the show seems familiar to me in ways I cannot place. She kind of reminds me of the blonde from Garfunkel and Oates, but I know oh, Ricky it's not Lindholm. Her. It's not. No, I know, but I, I'm like, I don't know if I've seen her in things or if she just reminds me of Ricky Lindholm. <laughs> you might have seen her. She is kind of most famously a host in the UK for various things like. Eight out of 10 cats. Would I lie to you? Have I got news for you? She works a lot with like Jimmy Carr, does the the big fat quiz of the year, that kind of stuff, if you've ever seen those YouTube clips. But she has a really kind of interesting story. So she is Canadian born, grew up in Canada, worked as a Hooters waitress for a bit, and sort of followed a guy to the UK about 15 years ago. That guy is the father of her first child. And so for most of her career as sort of a stand-up, she has been a single mother and has done a few different stand-up tours around the UK. She has two Netflix specials as well, one from 2017, one from 2019, which definitely sort of gave her this platform to develop her own sort of version on the sitcom uh, based on the stand-up life. So this story is very much semi-autobiographical from my understanding of her story. Yeah. And she has since, I think she's at a civil union with actually her high school sweetheart, which I think is really fun. Like, Hmm. yeah, 10 years after she had her first child, they sort of connected. He moved to the UK from Canada and now they have one child together and a second on the way. Reconnected with her high school sweetheart. Yeah. Oh, like years later. And so that's where she's kind of added in her life now, but Elise is a huge fan of hers and listens to her podcast as well. And so that's kind of how I got introduced to Catherine Ryan and one of the I was talking to Elise before we were recording and I was just like what is it about her that sort of has stuck out with you and for Elise it's her sort of take on very feminist 
ideas and what it means to be a mother and how she sort of leans into her story. And could definitely see that if you've ever seen her stand up. But this is kind of a different departure, I think, from her stand-up roots. It is a pretty, I don't know, what other, I, I kind of been blanking on what kinds of stand-up turd sitcom stars this reminds me of, like any sort of semi-autobiographical ones. I do want to say Louie, but I don't want to say Louie. So but you I'm, don't I'm, want so to bring, gonna, bring So I'm going to cut this out because I don't want to, but like anything like that. Actually, I was just watching uh, Hacks on HBO and they brought up how uh, they're trying to like release her stand-up special through their website. And he's like, like Louie, but that's the only thing like Louie. <laughs> I feel uh, like it's a bit of a trope. Like what other stuff like this? Oh, is there I, I, I mean, Whitney, I don't know, which I never watched. Uh, but, you know, Chris Delia fans, I'm sure did. And I don't know there. I feel like it was a big thing through the nineties and the early two thousands. You have a stand-up career that you hope turns into a sitcom career that hopefully turns into a Seinfeld. Everybody loves Raymond. Uh, Ellen DeGeneres, her show before the talk show. uh, I think it was just called Ellen. Yeah. We can also tie in like Rob Schneider show, Rob with the upside down exclamation point. Right. Or real Rob, which is on Netflix now, uh, I think still keeps getting renewed for some reason. <laughs> um, and then, oh, I mean, do you remember the show Titus on Fox? Yeah, that that's the just... thing. There's all these types of shows that people take sort of elements of their life, try to make it into a sort of sitcom formula. This is a single camera show though. So very different than the sort of multicam that I think that this idea was kind of built on. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. There are, uh, what about Rami? Oh yeah, totally. Like Rami. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah, Emmy nominated, um, Carmichael show. Mm-hmm. Uh, these are just two people I've brought up because I saw them do stand up and I worked their events and I'm realizing that both of them have our stand-up set of shows based on their lives. Rami's single camera, though. Carmichael's show was not. Um, God, there's other ones. I feel like there's a lot more of taking a writer who writes about their own life and then casts someone now these days. Like, um, oh, my gosh. Okay, what's her name? She just left SNL. She had a Hulu show that lasted two seasons. Called like Shrill, maybe? A.D. Bryant. On Hulu, where it was a writer who I think she wrote a book, turned into optioned it into a show, and it's autobiographical, but it's still an actress playing her. And that feels more normal these yeah. days. Mm-hmm. Like taking somebody's skill set and adapting it to somebody else's story. You know, thinking about other sort of vehicles for the sort of sketch character world like you know bill Hader and barry or vanessa bayer with i love that for you there that seems to be more the traditional route whereas this sort of route feels less common than it used to be and yeah, so it's, it's also you know it's it's british mm-hmm. and it's netflix so they don't follow the rules no they know? break them 
They have the American standards of television. And I'm actually very surprised to hear she's Canadian because mm-hmm. I assume this whole show was brash American in London uh, or wherever she lives. I assume it's London. It, um, it looks London-y. Yeah, yeah, it's a city. I could tell you that much. So that is a little bit surprising because I thought Canadians were supposed to be more polite than she is. No, and I think that's kind of the point. She is a bit brash. She is a mother, uh, sort of definitely defines herself by that as a very close relationship with her kid. Oh, more than anything, in six episodes, the whole thing is about her as a mother, but we only see her do her job once. Which I do like her job. She is a potter. Is it a potter? Does she do pottery? Is that a potter? I literally have no idea because, oh, did she make those pots that were in her living room? Okay, that makes sense. But her and her friend were being interviewed on stage. Yeah, because they own a line of body positive pottery. The place is called Kiln Um Softly. Wow. Okay, so I literally binge watched this <laughs> an hour before we are recording. And I either did not catch that or already forgot it because <laughs> they talk about it so little. It was exactly. It was a detail that I wrote down from the first like five minutes of the show. And Mm. so that's how I remember it. But she does own the shop with her best friend, Bev, who herself has four kids. Healthy sort of, you know, they kind of bring it up, but Bev has sort of a more traditional family. Yeah, I think they have five sons. I thought she maybe referred to her husband as the fifth son. Oh, maybe that was it. There we go. Like, I take care of five boys, that sort of thing. Could be that. But Catherine's just got the one. She has her daughter, Olive, who she definitely treats a lot like a sister in a lot of ways, but really like an awesome kid overall, it seems like. It's funny to see like this sort of brash Canadian personality clash with a kid that almost seems like overly posh, British-wise. Mm. On a scale of well, British to British. It's funny because she's raised by the Duchess. And why is the show called The Duchess? Because she dresses in a certain way that makes her seem both royal and also kind of childish, right? Yeah. Not the daughter, the mom. No, the mom opens up the show wearing a t-shirt that says world's smallest and also is able to wear a lot of fashionable ideas as well. Right. A lot of crown type situations going on that I think are interesting, but 90% of the time I thought it made her look kind of like a child. A little bit. These like, uh, like one of them, it's more than a headband, not (laughs) quite a tiara. It's very shiny. I want to say it's like, it's bedazzled only it's more expensive. You know, like, I don't know what to call those. Yeah, I don't either. And I don't think we are the people to try to define them. Oh, no. No, we are not. We are much closer to... We are two bald men that require... I, actually, in the gym, I really do need a sweatband, I've I've found out, because I'm, I'm starting to leak from my forehead. Welcome to bit. the club, bud. You start leaking everywhere. Yeah, you famously sweaty. Me, mm-hmm. I I didn't really start sweating till I was like twenty four. You had a good run. But I did. 
all roads lead to my glands. That's how it yeah. works. All roads lead to... Didn't we record an episode once and you had had to change your shirt oh, yeah. five times that day? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> that's happened. That's not the first time that's happened. Won't be the last. I know we're getting off track, but I don't care because that is <laughs> one of my favorite qualities about you is your constant pit stains. It's nice to know how quantifiably gross I am. Like There is a number behind it. We have yeah. data. And it's how many shirts did you have to wear today? How about this for a segue? You know who else is gross? Catherine's ex, Shep, who nice. is a former boy band guy, the father of Olive. He also lives on a boat, very much a conspiracy theorist. He's trying to stay off the grid, it's, mm-hmm. which is very important to him. He, at one point, she says, what are your favorite things uh, they're in a sexual situation in which he's trying to get aroused. And she's like, think of your favorite things, Brexit, bacon, something else. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, he's like he he's probably more of a libertarian anarchist situation where he just he wants to be off the grid. He doesn't think anyone should bring him down. But also he's got some kind of immigrants are taking our jobs aspect to him. Yeah, he definitely sort of bemoans the the Tories, but he also has a equality about them that he definitely doesn't like the idea of big government or people in his business at all, which makes him a great dad. Well, he he certainly has a joie de vivre that his daughter appreciates. Yeah. And uh Catherine does not badmouth him in front of the daughter. No but they do tend to badmouth each other every single chance that they get when they are alone. True. And so she's doing this all while kind of balancing a sort of relationship with a dentist named Evan. Evan is on the surface, the sort of prototypical quote unquote, nice guy tries to be supportive. Catherine throughout much, much of the series doesn't really care about him or his priorities because her priority is her kid. Everything else is secondary. She also just doesn't want to get attached to anything because she knows that men are gross. Early on, she literally, they've been together for a while, but she only sees him on Saturdays and she says something specifically to him about how she wants her and her daughter in their little bubble that they've gotten and she wants another child and she wants him, but she doesn't want him around when she doesn't want him around. And she only wants, you know, like she specifically is very selfish in this way that she has her priorities and her daughter's priorities and everyone else has to stay at arm's length. Everyone else is definitely in her world. She Mm. thinks that about her, the conflicts that she has with other people, their motivations towards her, every single thing is about her and what other people mean to her. And they don't have lives outside of her, which makes her feel as if she can have this relationship with this guy who truly only exists once a week. Otherwise, he is he is nothing. 
And yes. that's the kind of distance that she likes to keep with everyone, except for her daughter and except for Bev, too, She her best friend. She does really like that. But the, sh- the sort of... But the thrust of the plot, essentially, Catherine wants to give Olive another sibling and decides that the best source for the seed for this sibling is Shep. Even though they hate each other, Catherine really hopes the genes from her first baby daddy are going to carry over into another wonderful kid. Throughout the show, she kind of mucks her way through the logistics and consequences that accompany that decision while also finding room to open herself up to Evan. So it's this constant search for seed. I don't really know how else to say that because she doesn't want to have a relationship with Shep. She just wants she just wants that batter. And we can talk about her constant need for seed right after this commercial break. And now a word from our sponsors. Hi, this is Ian, and I'm trying to do this commercial as quickly as possible. Please review and rate us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Hive Social at One and Done TV. Email us oneanddonepod at gmail.com with any suggestions or thoughts. If you haven't hit the skip forward 15 seconds button yet, I will be amazed. Okay, enjoy the show. The Duchess is really defined by three relationships that Catherine has. So I thought it would be good to sort of dive into each of those to sort of describe what the show means. So first one I want to talk about is Catherine with her daughter, Olive. There is, I mentioned it before, but very much a sisterly quality to their relationship. And when I was listening to interviews with Catherine Ryan about kind of why she did the show and what she wanted to get out of the show, that relationship definitely seemed to be sort of the core of that because she didn't feel like that sort of side of the single mother experience was represented well in media. You know, this idea of you're, it's not just kind of getting around the hardships economic or otherwise about being a mother. It's about what does your relationship with your kid look like when it starts to evolve and when they start to grow up and not be necessarily your best friend anymore. Yeah. I feel like, um, shows about single mothers or a situation like that are usually about the hardships that they face, how hard it is to be a single mother, how much, in a way, you know, the child's like a burden, mm-hmm. you know, at least financially trying to keep their heads above water, that sort of thing. And this was a very unique take on single motherhood and that it was like, no, me and her are an item. I love our relationship and everything else is ancillary to it. Like um, this relationship is not a burden. This is the best thing about my life and everything's going to revolve around it and everything else is the hardship. It's yeah. Everyone else is getting in our way. Exactly. The reason that she wants to have the second kid is because she loves her kid so much. And she says, I want to give Olive a sibling. I think there should be two times as many awesome kids in this world. And then in episode two, Bev uh, almost dies from a botched uh, cosmetic surgery. It's like a, a liposuction. Yeah. Right. It's liposuction being 
her stomach fat being put into her butt or something. And, and she gets a pulmonary she... embolism. Yeah. <laughs> right. And it comes up very quickly and it's glossed over in kind of a funny way. But narratively, it serves as to freak Catherine out to be like, well, you know, what if Olive needs bone marrow and, <laughs> you know, she'll need a sibling that's going to match and can yeah. give her bone marrow? Or, you know, what if I die and then who's going to be with her? Her dad? Like, I hate him. You know, she needs to give Olive this gift of a younger sister. And as she tries to do this, her and Olive is like, oh, our baby. Yeah, she constantly refers to it as our baby. Everything is about what it's going to be for the two of them. And Mm -hmm. that kind of gets complicated, too, as Olive starts to get, like, a new friend at school. There isn't somebody else besides Catherine there. Well, first an enemy. First an enemy, but then they they make up and they become friends after being forced to hang out with each other. Skrull. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's an interesting relationship, too, because so the show starts out with uh, light bullying and Catherine confronts her mom. What's her name? Judy? Jane. Jane. (sighs) What is up with me and Jay names? These Jay names, dude. You, I'm surprised you get mine. This is like, okay, whatever, Joe. Uh, you don't have to rag me about it. But Jane. <laughs> you had to think about that. I really wanted to call her Judy again. So <laughs> the show starts out with her confronting her and she hits her coffee out of her hand and is like, keep your daughter in line. And then the next episode, her daughter gives her a card and Millie like very comically reads the card laughs and just straight pushes her to the ground, which I thought was kind of cheesy, but uh, I I don't know if it was supposed to be or whatever, but that was funny to me. And then they're forced to hang out together yeah, because they're enemies. So they're like, you have to hang out until you're friends and they become best friends, which is what causes the mom and the daughter's relationship to have to evolve. Yeah. And at the same time, Jane, her name's Jane. Need if you say so. Sort of weasels her way into Catherine and Bev's life because she's a, a know-it-all, which that felt, there's a couple of things like this, but that felt very false. I didn't understand why Jane wanted to be a part of her life, especially after in, at the end of the first episode, Catherine, blackmails Jane by sending nude photos of herself addressed to Jane's husband. And then when Jane confronts Catherine on the playground, Catherine goes up to the principal and says, this woman brought pornography onto school grounds. So it's this weird sort of dynamic where Jane is very people pleasy but also very nosy and tries to get all the all the dish and inserts herself everywhere but I don't understand why other than she's nosy. You're right. Her transition into being friends with them is a little bit gray. <laughs> but at least later in the season she does say that Catherine trying to steal her man away from her as a punishment for not being a better parent to her daughter. Uh, did give her the perspective that she needed to fight for her husband's affection more, Mm. and it weirdly strengthened their relationship. Yeah. So But that, again, is later. It is a (laughs) mucky transition, I agree. 
a little bit. And speaking of stealing men away, I think we could talk about the second major relationship in the show, which is Catherine with Shep. So as we kind of alluded to, Shep and Catherine hate each other constantly. They have this sort of agreement where Shep is going to take care of the kid once a week, but he is very much, he forgets his Olive's birthday. He doesn't really do much outside of being the fun dad once a week. It's so much so that Olive is disgusted to find out that in order to conceive her, Catherine and her dad actually had to have sex because that's how sort of their relationship is. Well, Catherine, when they go to the sperm bank together, tells her that they're there to get blood Blood. from a man. So part of Olive's trajectory throughout the season is her growing up. So she didn't even, despite Catherine being very sex positive, very feminist, very, you know, progressive parent, I guess you could say, she weirdly shelters, to me, weirdly shelters Olive from the idea of sex because she's nine years old and she doesn't know how babies are made, even though they're actively trying to have a second child. And she's like involved in this process. Uh, But it's her best friend, Millie, that has to, you know, describe the birds and the bees to her. Mm -hmm. And uh, that it's not really a conflict between, I guess it does create some conflict between her and her mom, but it, does do that thing where like a child learns about something and then is like constantly talking to everyone about it because (laughs) Evan, Evan is invited more into their lives at a certain point. And then she's like, okay, well, so what you just want him to sleep over so that you two can have sex. Like, so this is just about sex. Like you just want to have sex now. And they're like, uh, well, we're in a relationship, you know, it's not just about sex. And she's like, Uh, It definitely is about sex, and now everything's about sex because I just learned about sex. And she happens to be right. Oh, yeah. But they're they're trying to keep some of that drama away from them because she's trying to get impregnated by Shep even though so that they can have biological – so that Olive can have a biological sister, but she doesn't tell Evan about it, and Evan has to find out from Shep thinking that Catherine's told him about it. And so this creates a lot of tension between her and Evan. And that was one of those things that felt a little, she kept lying to Evan in in ways about this or withholding information that I could not, it felt a little bit back and forth to me between being genuine and between being, I'm not going to tell you this to drive drama into the narrative. How did that feel to you? It felt exactly that. It felt like, so, I mean, this is the third major relationship, right, between Catherine and Evan. They, she treats Evan as if he's nothing until he starts to leave and then she realizes that Evan is everything, which is a pretty sort of typical romantic comedy kind of setup. But what that doesn't have really is the understanding of why Evan would really like Catherine in the first place. Like at the start of the show, they've been together for over a year, I think of their Saturdays only arrangement. And yet he's still at arm's length. And he's like, I want to have babies with you. I want to marry you. I want to do this, but we don't ever really see anything about Catherine that 
makes us understand why Evan is drawn to her in the first place. We see a little mm. bit of that when they get back together towards the end of the six episodes. But before then, we don't, it doesn't ring as true because we don't see both sides of it. We see why he would mean something to her and why he would bring out of her shell, but we don't see what she brings to the table, at least in this particular relationship that they have. So I have a big thing to talk about uh, that aspect of things. I felt like in general, the first episode and a half was pretty muddy. I did not Mm -hmm. think it did the best job as a pilot of explaining the relationships, of telling us who the people were, not necessarily how they were related, but why they were related and what was going on. Felt like Bev came out of nowhere. Shep <laughs> literally comes out of nowhere because he always uh, jumps out hi. of bushes and like, he jumps out of ways. bushes to be like, right, to scare them and then be like, hey, I'm your fun dad. And then Evan is just kind of like, oh, it's the boyfriend. So you have to go a little bit based on um, type. Yeah. And then also one of my biggest problems with the show in general is the the very beginning. The plot starts out with the very first scene. It starts out with her and Olive walking down the street to school. And Olive is talking about how immigrants are taking all the jobs from people in the country. And Catherine is like not really describing to her why she's wrong. It's like, she's like, ugh, why are you saying these things? Like, that's not true. And then they run into the situation with Jane and her daughter and she knocks the coffee cup out of her hand. Mm -hmm. And that's how we're introduced to the series. And that conversation up top did not really play into the rest of the show. Agreed. So you start off in a situation that all it tells you is that she's a brash, what I thought American, uh, <laughs> that is in London and she's like this, uh, not tough as nails, but I guess brat, we'll just keep using the word brash. And everyone else is like, oh, I'm uptight and polite and British. And she is her, this very strong personality. And I really don't think we get a grasp on who everyone is or what's going on for at least an episode and a half. And it wasn't even until the end of the second act of the pilot that I got that this was going to be a show maybe about her trying to have another kid. Yeah. It doesn't set itself up very much. And it does take a bit to get going. I think the one thing that actually semi-ironically grounds it in some sort of reality is the very sudden emergence of Cheryl, Shep's fiance, Mm. which is very, yeah, like I said, very sudden. So Shep was- I think it's episode four. Yeah. After she's, after Catherine and Evan have broken up the first time, and Shep basically meets this woman who was a huge fan of the boy band that he was in, which I do love the boy band name, Truce. It's like Truce. Great. Yeah. And I think she calls herself a true believer, too. But Oh, my God. That's right. Yeah. 
And Cheryl is this really, she kind of comes out of his boathouse and it's like, we're engaged. It's like, oh, who's this sort of bottom feeder? Turns out it's actually, she's very wealthy. She has a pool in her house, like a mansion, is going to be able to take care of Shep and Olive and doesn't and have Catherine, really any she's very ulterior supportive motives. of the family situation. She's very supportive of Catherine trying to have a kid with Shep's sperm. It, it, to go as far as to like deliver a syringe every day of it to her to try to use. But then uh, there, there's the funny episode where her friends are like, no, she's handmaid's tailing you. Like <laughs> you're just her free surrogate to have her baby. And so she's really paranoid about that. And she, there's a really funny scene where she's watching the handmaid's tale mm-hmm. and just becoming horrified. Uh, but then it turns out Cheryl is like not doing that. And she's actually very nice. So we're into episode five, and at this point, Olive is growing up. And then we get into episode six, where there's a wedding. Cheryl and Shep do go through with it. Evan and her have gotten back together. And then it turns out Evan is a kind of a bad dude. Like, he's yeah. a jerk. Yeah, Which was such a twist. Yeah. And one that felt kind of earned but it also seemed like it came out of nowhere a little bit. Mm. Like we saw these sort of, I guess, breadcrumbs of him maybe being a little controlling, maybe being a little spiteful. Yeah, more like his feelings are hurt, so he lashes out in tiny ways. Yeah, but it also seems like the show he does care and then all of a sudden he just like punches Shep at this wedding and is like you're to Olive he's like your parents hate you I was just like I get why he I get that he said that and I guess they sort of set it up a little bit throughout the show but it did feel a little out of nowhere to it felt like a way to get him out of the picture because they decided he wasn't going to be around for the long haul And that, I think, is, again, very indicative of what I think the problems with the show are. And also just some sort of serialized, or not serialized, some sitcoms that have season-long arcs that are just trying to insert character motivations in order to drive conflict, in order to get people to the end point that they want to get to. Oh, dude, I have a love-hate relationship with the show Hacks and that does that so hard. Mm -hmm. Like they create a conflict so that something, something happens really quickly, a little bit out of nowhere that launches to a next story element that just doesn't feel earned. And sometimes I want to give up on Hacks, but then, then it comes back and it gets me. So I don't know. I go back and forth on it. Yeah, it can be very affecting. It can feel very chaotic. I think that the twists and turns that the show takes, even on this relatively like straight path that it is on, they toe that line very finely. Mm. And I will say, in defense of the Evan freakout, earlier in the season, she didn't tell him about Shep trying to get pregnant with Shep's sperm. Then at the end, he finds out 
that she's pregnant with Shep's baby, but doesn't know that it like wasn't through sex this time, that it was just through this donor process. She does hold a lot from him. Like earlier in the show, episode two or three, it's right before they break up. She is sitting down at dinner with Evan and she's like, I want to have a baby. And then she doesn't say anything else and lets him go on and on about like, we're going to get married. We're going to have a house. We're going to have a family, blah, blah, blah. And she let, he builds his own hopes up until she's like, no, you don't understand. I don't want to have a baby with you. I want to have a biological baby with my ex-husband, you know, and this whole situation. And she does do this thing to him constantly where she withholds information knowingly and does not put out the fire. She lets the fire burn and then tries to throw a blanket on it. Yeah. And there it's a lot of that that happens where people overshare information and then we see the sort of turn against it. And that's the thing that sort of drives the plot, drives the conflict. And I thought there were times throughout the show where that could have been modulated a little better to make it a little bit more affecting. Yeah, because Evan freaking out at Olive at the end and being like, your parents are are terrible, selfish people. And then that he tells her that so that Catherine can be like, look, you, I hurt you on accident, but you just hurt Olive on purpose. So you can leave. Also, he punched Shep at his own wedding. Yeah. Which I did think it was kind of funny that Shep's like, oh, all Irish people get punched at their own <laughs> yeah. wedding. Yeah. Not a big deal. And then all of a sudden, the show ends with Evan being the bad guy and Shep all of a sudden being like, you know what? Maybe he's not so bad. Yeah. And that's where we end. I mean, that was uh, that was an interesting Interesting bow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think we can put a bow on this uh, discussion of the plot, and we'll be right back after this commercial break with some Dunzo Awards. And now a word from our sponsors. It's time for the Dunzo Awards. These are the awards that we give out to every show that we watch. It could be the best, it could be the worst, it could be the most, it could be the weirdest, whatever it is. We have decided to give elements of this show our recognition and some beautiful plaques that will be mailed to the recipients at a date TBD. So each of us get two Dunzo Awards to give out. I will let my co-host give out his first award. Ian, what a what is your first Dunzo Award? My first Dunzo Award is the Point of View Award. And that goes to the show as a whole, which I think of all of the shows that we have reviewed so far, this has the strongest point of view. It this is all the creator and writer and star's attitude. Um, this is her view of the world. This is her experience. It's got her stamp all over it. And 
that is definitely the strongest part of the show to me because we talked about, you know, the problems with the first episode or two. But through those problems, I at least knew where she was and I at least Mm -hmm. knew the world revolved around her. And, you know, her personality, her jokes, her, the way that she just tears people apart with insults. Um, you know, it, it carries through. I mean, there's a, there's a really funny part where her daughter gets in trouble. She gets suspended from school, her and her friend for insulting all the kids. Can I, can I say what it was? It was Olive and Millie rank the kids from hottest to thoughtest. Yes. I love it. But the most vicious insult that comes out of their mouth, which clearly she heard from her mom, was the smartest thing to come out of your mouth was a (laughs) Which was crazy. I laughed so hard at that. And that also was so offensive. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. So this is just this woman all over it. Yeah. She's cool. She's cool. I could definitely get behind um, a podcast or something where she's just spouting off about things. I I get why she's a personality. Yeah. She definitely has a really strong, unique point of view. She leans into her story a lot in the material that she does outside of this as well. She definitely gives a lot of herself to this show and it is very evident on the, on the screen. And that kind of leads actually into my first Dunzo award which is the most affecting moment and i'm going to give that to olive's haircut mm-hmm. because is so this idea of like the loss of innocence that olive is sort of going through during parts of the show kind of comes to a head in the fifth episode when olive says i, I really want to get a haircut i want to get my hair cut to shoulder length Catherine's like okay and she's like i want to go to the barber shop that has the pink car. She's like, let's do that. They go to the barbershop. The hairstylist says, oh, that pink car is for babies. No, like you're a big girl. You can come over to the chair. She's like, well, I want to go to the pink car. And there is this moment where the hairstylist cuts off the sort of bigger chunk of her hair. She calls it her baby hair. Olive definitely wants to grow up but she also still has this attachment to this childhood that she feels like she's leaving a bit of a part of behind. And there's a really, really great shot where next to this pink car barber chair is a, like a fighter jet pilot uh, barber chair. And the kid in that one is like four or five. He's having the time of his life. He's moving the wheel. He's like making noises. And so she just like wants to play. And she kind of has her hand hover over the wheel, but she doesn't like grab it because she doesn't, she just has kind of lost a little bit of that. And that makes. She doesn't need to play. She wants to get her hair cut. She wants this change in her hair, which is the change of her personality. It's, it's all happening in front of both of them at the same time. And they both feel the push and pull of that in different ways. And I thought that was just a really well communicated moment and 
when I was watching an interview with Catherine Ryan about the show, like one of the questions was, what is the most personal moment? And she said that one, that like, that was something that happened with her daughter, almost like to the T. And I wish there was more in there that felt as real as that did, because that really got me. I love the specificity of that moment across the board. And it really sort of made me invest not just in Olive going through this sort of change, but also Catherine coming to grips with who she is, what she is doing to people, and what needs to change in order for her to kind of accept what's happening. I don't know. Do you have any other thoughts on that moment? Oh, I have many thoughts on that moment. So there's... A couple technical reasons, I think, why that scene lands so hard. Because one of my criticisms of the first couple episodes is that it really moves very quickly. Um, the editing is, the the dialogue is pretty fast and furious, not as much as previous shows, but there's a, a lot of long lines said quickly, you know, where it's like, a list and then an explanation and then an exclamation on the explanation. And then and that it, exclamation right before it, there's a comma with like some weird insult that nobody would really say in real life. Yes. So the there's a lot of dialogue and it happens really quickly and the scenes go by quickly because of that. And the show moves very quickly. And this is one of the only scenes where it really slows down. We really take our time with the surroundings and the gravity of the moment. And it's one of the only times it really attempts to tug at our heartstrings. And I think it lands because it is a very well done Mm -hmm. and B so different from the rest of the show. It, yeah. it really is, it's edited differently, it's shot differently. The acting, I would even say it's a it's a different tone. It's the best in, in the series, scene. I think. Yeah. Abs- absolutely. And it also comes off the heels of a scene where Olive was in a dress that for Cheryl and Shep's wedding where all the other women are trying to be like, Oh, look how grown up you are. You look like a tiny bride. Uh, You should put on some, a little bit of makeup. And Catherine pushes back really hard on that. And she's like, we're not trying to romanticize virginity. She is nine years old. She is not an adult. Like she's not a bride. Like she's doing this, uh, you know, I, I think a very feminist forward defense of her daughter and at the same time is freaking out a little bit about her daughter aging Mm -hmm. and this is and this is after several episodes of them doing this back and forth of you know trying to be a kid trying to age and then so this scene finally breaks it all free and then it gets undercut so hard when all of a oh sudden, gosh. Yeah. Catherine calls Evan. She runs out of the store crying. She doesn't want to cry in front of everybody. Calls Evan on the phone. And all of a sudden, the song, I want to wake up where you are, plays. And Evan, cliche, romantic comedy, runs through the streets from work. He's still in his dentist uniform to be with her, to console her in that moment. And 
everything that was great about that scene was undercut so hard by how cheesy that run was to that song. And I had disdain for the show at that moment <laughs> for being so good and then so bad it's so quickly. It's a frustrating moment because you don't understand why they would make that choice. And there's another sort of similar thing. I think it's earlier in that episode after the scene where they are doing the dress shopping and then they sort of awkwardly transition into a scene where Catherine wants to go on a party bike with Cheryl and her bridesmaids. And for some reason, she just goes really hard on that party bike and is like sweating and like drinking water. And it's kind of a funny idea, this idea of, oh, what would be funny if somebody used a party bike as an exercise bike. But I had no idea what led up to it or why it happened or what its purpose was. Oh, and you didn't it, know why she was working out on that bike? No, what is it? It was because earlier in the episode, she realizes she doesn't want to get pregnant with Shep's sperm anymore. And someone tells her that that's the way, I think it's Bab tells her that that's the way Catholic girls try not to get pregnant is to work really hard in spin class to uh, shake it all loose. <laughs> and... That is why she was working so hard on the party bike. And actually, okay. I thought it was really funny because of that. Okay. Okay. That makes more sense. Maybe I'll cut this out. Who knows? No, no, no. But I mean, but that just goes to show that they don't always do the best job of explaining what's going on. Mm-hmm. So with all that being said, Ian, what's your second Dunzo? My second Dunzo is the Unsexy Sex Scene Award. Ooh, and that goes to every sex scene in this show. I mean, when she's in order to try to conceive another child, her and Shep have to uh, they hate each other so much that the only way they can try to be aroused around one another is to role play the night that they conceived Olive. Exactly. This is preceded, though, by. Catherine saying, I need your sperm. And then it's going to, you know, be put inside of me. And Shep be like, no, I don't trust Western medicine. If we're going to do this, we need to conceive it naturally. Naturally. Yes, exactly. And she's even going to pay him a stud fee, of uh, like 10 grand and stuff. Uh, uh, so it, it was pretty crazy. Why, why, do you, uh, why do you sigh so hard at that? Just because it was one of those things that I felt like was a disservice to the every character involved and it was just to set up this sort of wacky situation that I didn't, you know, I don't need to buy everything, but it felt more like they were just setting up a beat rather than listening to the characters. Uh, and that's wait, the thing that frustrated me. Are you talking about the stud fee or are you talking no, about? No, sorry. I'm just kind of rolling my eyes at the whole thing, not specifically the stud fee. Like, Oh, cause Cause that was a long scene too. It was a long scene. The sex scene that you were talking about. Yeah. So, I mean, do you want to, I cut you off, but well, tell, even, tell okay. So I don't even want to get too into it because, uh, we're supposedly a PG, uh, podcast, even though we're sex positive, I guess. Um, they cannot get aroused in this alley and they try everything and it's not sexy, but then even her and Evan, uh, are having sex when he's, 
uh, staying with at her house in Olive's bedroom. And he all he's seeing is like all these like plush toys and a picture of Shep and like all this other stuff. So he can't it's not working for him. And then even when it is, she starts like talking to him about work or something. And then or about it's about Bev's plastic surgery, like the the liposuction. And so it's just every sex scene in this is very unsexy. And there's one where Bev goes out with her husband and she's like, I'm not wearing any knickers. And he's like, yeah, me neither. I forgot to put a wash on last night. (laughs) And she's like, no, I'm trying to be sexy. And he's just like, oh, I didn't do laundry. You know, so this show consistently made sex very unsexy. And I I thought that was really funny. Unsexy, but still surprisingly graphic. Like, Fun fact, I oh, very watched, graphic. Yeah. I watched those episodes with those two sex seeds on a train, and I was sitting next to somebody who was clearly like in work mode. And so <laughs> I did not I didn't watch the sex seeds really. I listened to them and I just kind of put the phone down on my thigh and kind of like looked at it as if I was trying to like sneak a view of a text in a play or something like that. But I didn't really watch the actual part of that because I was so uncomfortable with how unsexy but graphic it still was. Yes, it was. I mean, this show, uh, without being overly graphic, it's still very graphic. Like it would be an R- but for what it makes you, you know, it's like uh, Hitchcock with the shower stabbing scene is very critical because everyone's like, you can't show a naked woman in the shower. And and he was like, no, you never see anything. Anything that you think you're seeing is your mind filling in the blanks. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's you being dirty, not the movie. Yeah, um, you sick perverts. Right. And this show gets right up to seeing everything and then your mind fills in the blanks. And to that extent, it is, it is NC 17 show. I mean, (laughs) without being as graphic as what's that, uh, that sex positive show that was on HBO with Adam Scott. It was another one and done. Tell me you love me. Tell me you love me. Cause that one was very graphic, very graphic. Uh, and this one somehow felt more graphic despite, being less graphic. <laughs> so that's uh, funny to me. Uh, the unsexy sex scenes was very funny part of the show to me. John, what is your second Dunzo? Well, it's good that I got a singing introduction because my second Dunzo goes to the best trio of ending songs. So I know that you did not like the, I want to wake up where you are. Cause I, mean, I, I like that song, but I didn't like the scene. no, But the show ends on a trio of bangers that work out great. Uh, There is Larger Than Life by the Backstreet Boys, which plays over the reception of Shep's wedding. There is, which is great because of the boy band connection as well. After Evan beats up Shep and then like leaves and everyone's kind of like, hey, we're still going to try to make the most of this wedding. They play Little of Your Love by Haim, which I really like that song. And then the show ends with Catherine giving 
birth to her and Shep's biological baby with Olive standing there and the baby in between the two of them. And they're playing Robin's Dancing on My Own, which is a fantastic cut to black song. There are, there are some songs that sort of build in a way that you know the exact beat that a show should end on, and that's one of them. And I was like, I hope they end exactly on this beat. And they did, and it was satisfying, and it made me go into the final credits of that show happy. And that, that was great. It was really nice to have that sort of like, a lot of the shows that we watch sort of kind of just fizzle or they try to end on some sort of cliffhanger or some sort of reason to come back to it. And even though the show was canceled, it wasn't a mini series. It ended on that sort of high that I think was elevated by that song choice specifically. And that made me really happy. I don't know. Are there any songs like that, that you're like, this is a great ending song to a TV show or movie? Uh, yeah. Every episode of Mad Men ends with a great song. That's true. But like a cut to black moment, though. You know what I mean? Where it's just like like the beat. like Because the thing about the the Robin song is it's got that do 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 And that's the cut. And you're like, hell yeah. Uh, I know that there are songs like that. I cannot think of anything off the top of my head. Mm-hmm. Um, it, But it's funny that that's like a Dunzo years because I'm going to be honest. I barely noticed any of that. Like... I was just like, oh, you know what I thought of whenever I heard music in this? I was wondering what the music budget was. (laughs) Because it seemed to be pretty high, yeah. It did. I was like, I kind of know all these songs, which is strange because I don't know the most about contemporary music. I am an old man in that sense. And yet you were still part of a group called the Backstreet Boys. The 4th of July festivities in our hometown of Arlington Heights. They have a sport where everybody tries to shoot a keg in the middle of the street with firehouses past the other team's line. And our team was always called Backstreet Boys. And then eventually we had some rivals called NSYNC as well. They were never as good, though. No, that was a ragtag group of friends that did not care as much as we did. No, we were very committed Backstreet Boys. And we did quite well, actually. We did. It was just always Harry's Bar one every year, and we always get knocked out by them. Yeah, stupid Harry's Bar. But I will always enjoy the Backstreet Boys and their presence in any bit of pop culture. Why don't we cut to a commercial break, and then we'll talk about why the show got canceled. And now a word from our sponsors. The Duchess premiered on Netflix across the world in September of 2020. The show was effectively canceled, or at least it was announced in April of 2021. Catherine Ryan actually went on a podcast, uh, Vicki Pattinson's podcast called The Secret 2. And she that's where she sort of revealed that it was not going to be renewed. It seems like Netflix kind of does this whenever they feel like it. They just don't feel like they need to say that a show is canceled. They just kind of tell the creators and then the creators bring it up. That's what happened. They with bring Q it Force. up on a podcast. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Second time in a row for a Netflix show for us. And so Catherine Ryan basically said that 
They didn't want to make any more. Not enough people watched it. She says she thinks 10 million people watched it across the world in 28 days, and that wasn't enough. But she also said that she wasn't terribly sad about it. I was listening to her in interviews as well, talking about sort of the development of shows or this show. And it doesn't seem like it took like a big mental toll on her, but it does seem like it made her stretch her creative muscles in ways that she didn't necessarily enjoy, at least in Mm. the long term. Like she talked later in this podcast about how it was hard to develop it. It was, yeah, it was hard to make it. There was a lot that went into it that she wasn't really expecting. You know, she is a stand-up, a host. It's all very sort of focused on her. And the entire show is written by her. There's no other writers that are credited with putting together the show. But undertaking six episodes on a show that is entirely about you is a big thing. And I can understand how that might not necessarily be for every creator at least. Oh yeah. I mean, I think I've talked about on this show. It's incredibly hard to do more than to do one job. Well on a TV show, let alone multiple jobs on a TV show, you know, back to our Bob Patterson episode. It's like, you know what? Jerry Seinfeld can write, star, and produce his own shows, but very few people actually should because either they're not that good or guess what? If you're filming 12-hour days, guess how you're also doing rewrites, you know? I mean, mm-hmm. that's – and I I'm assume she produced it as well to a certain She was extent. an executive I mean, producer, yeah. Right. Like, this is so much work for so long that – I don't understand how anyone could do this, could do all of that multiple years in a row. Absolutely. And I also saw her talk about acting and she said something to the effect of, and it was definitely a joke, but she said, I thought acting was just not getting Botox for a year and then your face moves again. And she said it was a lot harder than that and that she learned a lot from the her scene partners and stuff. I think that came through. I thought she was not the best actor. And there was some line deliveries that were a little stunted. Yes. Yeah, it was the line delivery. Like, when she had to cry, no problem. Like, mm-hmm. you know, she could get the emotion out. But as far as getting some of the dialogue that she wrote out, she struggled sometimes to make it feel genuine yeah it is tough to sort of translate that from being a writer mentality writing your own voice to like actually portraying a character even though that character is essentially you that it's not as far of a leap for a performer but it still is a leap it still requires a certain skill set it also requires people to listen to i mean acting I'll, I'll go cliche. Acting is reacting. And I think there's a lot of stuff in this show where people just kind of said things and the reactions were very weird and I didn't really understand kind of where they came from. And there just seemed to be a bit of a disconnect sometimes between the writing and the performing, though I thought all the other actors did a fine job. That is part of my problem overall with 
quote unquote clever writing is -hmm. that it is hard to come across as natural to me. And if you are not at the top of your game, it takes me out of it. Yeah. And right. So it's like, you could tell she's a, she's a great writer and she's a very clever writer. Great point of view. Yeah. Maybe she could have used some, some help in some of the story elements of things, but you know, if you're too in love with your own dialogue and you can't spit it out, that's a, an issue. Yeah. And I think it kind of played on the screen, especially at times. And I think it got better as the show went along. And maybe that was just her getting Definitely. more experience and sort of more under her wing. And she got a little bit more comfortable in front of the camera. But yeah, it especially in those earlier episodes, I think it was kind of an issue. And it wasn't like egregious. It wasn't like no, it was the no, worst no, no. acting I'd ever seen or no. whatever. It was just... It just didn't feel genuine always. It, it was just kind of surprising, again, given the fact that this is her story, her writing, her dialogue, mm-hmm. and that when it still didn't come out as naturally, you were like, but the pieces are all there. Like, what, mm-hmm. is, what is happening there? It also is, I think, generally kind of hard, and this is definitely a me thing, but somebody without a British accent saying British dialogue does always throw me off a little bit. If people are saying mum and lift and loo, I got to admit, it takes me out of it a little bit if they don't have that affectation on it. Well, but at least to me, she lives there. So she's like used to saying it. I don't think that there's anything wrong. I don't think she's appropriating it or doing anything like that. I do feel like it comes very naturally. <laughs> I'm not going to have her. a problem with anyone appropriating British <laughs> English because I'm pretty sure they they put it upon others. <laughs> It's reverse. Yes. It's reverse appropriation, for sure. It's colonialism. (laughs) (laughs) I feel like she uses that slang very naturally, for sure. Mm -hmm. But just phonetically, it throws me off. Like, just hearing it. I don't know what it is. But also speaking to that idea that you just said about you need to be at the top of your game in order to deliver that, I think that also comes with the idea of self-destructive characters. That is a tough thing for me to pull off. Like, it is a tough thing for me to enjoy just as a viewer of things. I have a really hard time following characters that don't make the right decisions. Am I a control freak? Absolutely. Do I not understand why people do things that I wouldn't do? Of course. So I do admit that. But it is still tough for me to... And I think when it works, it works really well. But when it doesn't you just are constantly questioning the motivations of the characters doing these things. Well, it's funny that I guess she is a self-destructive character now that I think about it. Not quite like, I don't know, high fidelity or something like that. But she's not self-destructive when she's in her own world. But when she does have to interact with the outside world, she is. So it's funny. I didn't think of her like that, but. I get why you would. So with all that being said, Ian, the question of the do goes to you. Would you renew? I am going to give a sort of uh, who wants to be a millionaire explanation to my answer here. I'm going to walk you through the story here. Okay, that doesn't really work with our sound cues, but we'll make it work. 
exactly. Uh, I'm going to talk until I decide what it is I'm going to say because I'm riding <laughs> the line here. I, I really am on the fence. I really did not like most of the pilot. And then I was like, okay, but is this just the thing that I do? And will I start to like it once it gets its legs? And I did. It had very unique points of views. uh, And it had some deep things to say. It bothered me a lot. And it's kind of too clever-ish writing. Some of the elements, it didn't always come together. Like chemistry is a tough thing. And there's three writers to every film. That is the writer, the director, and the editor. And I would say if the writing was there, the directing wasn't. And if the directing was there, the editing failed. And many times in the show, it couldn't feel like everything was happening well at the same time. Uh, it, I went back and forth on enjoying elements of it and then hating those same elements of it because it just didn't feel like it was presented as well or it was acted as well. And sometimes the acting was good and sometimes it was bad and sometimes the writing was annoying and sometimes it was cool and surprising. And sometimes the editing was too quick to let the joke land. And sometimes the scene went on too long. And But at the same time, I think that it had its moments creatively with the story, with the relationships, um, with especially the core family and the way that the stepmom surprised us um, and the friendships. And it did also feel like with our Zach Stone is going to be famous episode, we talked about how it felt like a story, like that one season was one story and Actually, I felt pretty complete by that. So I think I have to go. Would not renew. There were too many things about the show that didn't work. And at the same time, I felt satisfied by the conclusion and don't really know or care where a second season would go. Even though I do, I do like the mother-daughter relationship a lot. And I did, Bev did grow on me. And so did Jane and the daughter, Millie. I did care about what was going on, but I don't care to see anymore. And I don't ultimately trust the filmmakers 100%. Well, that was quite a journey you you took us on. I, I didn't know what I was going to say, but, uh, you know, I had to walk there. Isn't that just most of your life, though? Like, you just are kind of muddling through it figuring it out as you go along. I usually know beforehand if I'm going to cancel something or not, but I really struggled. I kind of figured I would decide by the end of our conversation. So I just, the audience had to hold my hand as I walked into the cave of despair (laughs) or uncertainty. At least of cancellation. Well, John, after that, uh, Slumdog Millionaire response, I have a question (laughs) for you. Would you renew? I wouldn't renew. 
cool. Wow. Uh, so that's it. Okay. Uh, I think we're done. Yeah. Like you, you said all the words and then I get a couple left over. That seems to be how we do it. Usually <laughs> I have a long explanation and you mostly agree. Uh, this I partially agree. The overall frustration, I think, with the show is what got me. And it didn't fully grab me by the end of it, this sort of idea that they had fixed all of the issues. Because there are times where a show starts off with frustrating elements, but they kind of smooth them out as the run goes on. And therefore, the better things sort of bubble to the surface. This didn't work as much for me. There are things that I really liked about it. Yeah, the dynamic between Catherine and Olive was far and away the best part of the show for me. And I thought it really rang true. And again, the fact that it was, again, looking at Catherine Ryan and her experience and how she talks about the show, it seems to be the reason she wrote the show. And so I wish there was a lot more to that. And the rest of it, though, I think especially the dynamic that she had with Evan which was something that I was curious about at the beginning, but then the way it sort of wrapped up, I think it really took away from, or at least distracted from the most compelling parts of the show. And I think if we could have made the lines a little clearer, if we could have made the stories a little better, the motivations a little bit more nuanced, there were things underneath the surface here that I really liked and that I really wanted to see developed. But the fact that it wasn't was ultimately frustrating for me as a viewer. So with all that being said, Catherine Ryan does great stand-up. She's a really funny host. I know that this is the last thing that she has in her arsenal and so I'm curious to see where else she can go. But it seemed like it was an experiment for her and a push for her. And I, I'm sure she's glad that she did it. She called the experience very cathartic. But for me as a viewer, it didn't really work. And so I, I'm happy with the six. I, I think she was failed a bit by the people, the other filmmakers that worked with her. I really do. Because I think she did a really good job for the most part um, of creating an interesting story with funny dialogue, but it just didn't all come together. And I I don't know what company produced this, uh, not necessarily Netflix, but you know, whatever, whoever actually made it. I, I think that they're probably the ones to blame. I would have liked to see these ideas, this dialogue with, a different lead, unfortunately. And mm. I think that that for me was the the toughest part to, to get. What about, out. what about if this was just a movie? If this was a, like a two hour movie, hour 45. I could see that. Right. Yeah. I could, I could see me, me liking that. Yeah. I think we would have gotten less bogged down in some of the other, the fluff that again, distracted from the main stuff. That's a great point. I think it would have been a better movie. Yeah, but even the fluff, though, I didn't feel like it was going on too long necessarily, except for that one scene. Uh, <laughs> like, I wasn't like, oh, just move on already. 
it didn't feel like that, but it does feel like you could have trimmed the fat and just gotten one solid movie out of all of this. Mm-hmm. And she could For have sure. still starred, I think. And as it was, I mean, it was only six 22 to 25 minute episodes. Pretty easy watch. I think if you are a big Catherine Ride fan, go for it. Oh, yeah. But- if, you, if you're a fan of hers, you'll enjoy it. I think if you were on the fence about watching this show, if it was on your periphery, go ahead and watch it. I mean, it's a decent show. It's a really show. easy watch, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's, it is an easy watch. And there's plenty of funny things about it. I mean, there's plenty of things to enjoy. It's just, is this the best piece of art that's worthy of your time for hours and hours and hours to come? No. So, Ian, where can people find us? Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at One and Done TV. Email us your thoughts. I'd like some feedback and some thoughts, uh, or even a not suggestion T-H-O-T of a show. Thoughts, though. No, 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 no. I see what you did there. Mm-hmm. One and Done Pod at gmail.com is our email. Venmo me at Hamilton. As always, continue to Venmo me hundreds of dollars. All of our thousands and thousands of fans. I'm super rich, but I want the I want the rich to keep getting richer. So keep sending me money. Um, and uh, John, how's that Lodge pan scraper working out for you? Elise used it this morning, and she adored it. She yes! wanted me to pass on the yes! the recommendation. Yes, she made Perfect. some scrambled eggs. Cleaned the pan right up. Nice. Exactly. One. Eggs and sauce. It gets the job done. Mm-hmm. You know what else gets the job done in terms of Fulfilling Your Heart, How To With John Wilson. Seasons one and two on HBO Max. Give it a go. But When's season three coming out? Next year, I think. I don't know. That makes sense. I think season two was like last October. Yeah, they don't pay me. Oh, one more, one more thing about this show, though. Did it feel very COVID shot to you? I think it must have been. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. That September blows of 2020. my mind. Because there were only like two or three characters in a room at a time. There were only a couple locations. The most expensive thing was probably the the music budget. I I don't think they filmed it in COVID. If they did, I think they filmed it at the beginning of 2020. But I don't think it was. Maybe they had to finish up some shots, you know, to get it done. But that's wild to me that this wasn't COVID shot because the whole time I was thinking it was. Mm -hmm. Well, I think. With that, we are shot, and we're done. Turn it off. I keep dancing on my phone. Own. Brought to you by Lack of Hustle Media.